I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 113. About IBD is excited to be partnering on this new limited podcast series, How to Be Happy and Healthy with IBD. Even as a long-term IBD patient, I still don't understand how health insurance works. But to be fair, the rules are always changing, so it can be really difficult to keep up. As patients, we struggle with issues surrounding health insurance, but what some might not realize is that our providers are also spending time and energy to deal with these problems. To get both the patient and the clinician side of this issue, I asked Dr. Shuba Bhatt, who is a gastroenterology clinical pharmacist at the Cleveland Clinic, and Jamie Holland, who is a healthcare activist and Crohn's disease patient, to tell me how they handle health insurance complications. Jamie and Dr. Bott not only outline the major barriers with health insurance, but also provide some concrete solutions and tips to manage the approval and prior authorization processes. Our topic is tips and guidance for navigating health insurance. This is a topic that I don't really understand very well myself, so I have asked two guests to come and share their knowledge and experience. First, I have with me Dr. Shuba Bhatt, who is a gastroenterology clinical pharmacist at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Bhatt, thank you so much for coming on about IBD, and I wonder if you would take a minute to introduce yourself. Yeah, hi, everyone. As I am very mentioned. My name is Dr. Bat, and I'm a clinical pharmacist embedded in the IBD clinic at the Cleveland Clinic. I primarily focus on medication education, access, management, and monitoring, and I interact frequently with patients in this capacity. My goals are really to make sure that patients initiated on medications are comfortable and knowledgeable about it, able to assess it in a timely and cost-effective manner, and do well on treatment without having any major side effects. Really excited to be here. So thank you, Amber and Jamie, for the opportunity. Your job is so critically important, truly. And yet I think so few patients have access to someone that's in your role. So I'm really excited to get to hear more about um, what it is that you do and how that you can assist patients. So I also have with me Jamie Holland, who is a healthcare journalist, advocate, and Crohn's disease patient. She also moonlights as my content management specialist. We last heard her all the way back on episode 17. I want to welcome you back, Jamie, to About IBD. Would you take a moment to introduce yourself as well? Hi, everyone. I am Jamie Holland. And as Amber mentioned, I am a health journalist, patient advocate. I'm also a patient. Um, not only am I a patient, I'm also a decision maker for my nephew who has Crohn's disease as well and a rare digestive disease. Right, which is another aspect of your knowledge and experience that really lends itself kind of uh, sort of unfortunately to understanding all of these insurance issues. Like I'm not happy that you've experienced some of the things and that your nephew has experienced some of the things that he has. But at the same time, we can totally mine that to help other patients. So I'm really glad to have you here today. Thank you. So let's get into this topic because it is super important in the management of IBD since so many of us rely on our medications to keep that pesky inflammation under control. And Dr. Bott, I'd really like to start with you because patients are pretty well versed on the ways that health insurance affects 
their care, but I think that they don't truly understand how it affects our clinicians. So what are some of the ways that insurance impacts your practice and those of the people that you're on staff with? So I really appreciate you asking this question. Um, similar to patients, the insurance effects on clinician and practices can be burdensome and exhausting. The specific barrier is the need for prioritization. So these were ironically introduced to mitigate overuse of expensive health services and treatments that are not medically necessary, um, with the hope with the hope that we can actually contain care costs and promote evidence-based care. And essentially what happens in the prioritization process is that a patient's clinician has to submit an application justifying the need for a service or treatment, and the insurance will then assess if it's actually necessary. Um, so just a heads up, the prioritization process can apply for both medical-related procedures and medication. Um, and from our perspective, from a clinician perspective at the office, it's really frustrating when the prioritization process is not utilized as it's supposed to be. So I can't tell you how frustrating it is when our practice orders various lab tests, imaging, or procedures that we know are necessary to help assess how well patients are doing and if any modifications are needed to keep their IBD under control. But then we find out afterwards that it's either not covered or it's a major out-of-pocket expense for our patients. And then we know that this can lead patients to defer these tests in the future. So from a medication perspective, some of the prioritization requirements that have been put in place are completely unnecessary and they can actually lead to patient harm due to treatment delays. This significantly affects their practice because now we're spending additional time on unnecessary tests and we're not limited in how we can actually practice medicine. Moreover, during the prioritization process, patients who are flaring continue to suffer, and those who may have been actually doing pretty well before the issue was brought on by the insurance may now start to have GI symptoms or flare, and we know that this can increase the use of steroids, which is never an ideal for long-term use, or it's never really an ideal patient outcome. So it's interesting because the prior authorization burden has been studied before, and actually one survey noted that approximately 30 to 50% of patients may actually abandon the entire treatment just because of this whole complex, unnecessary process. So it's really, really frustrating overall. And then one last key point that I just would like to briefly talk about is that insurance processes are not designed to be helpful for clinicians. Um, and here's an example. So in a process known as peer-to-peer, um, essentially, what happens is that a gastroenterologist or a staff can verbally justify why a certain test or treatment needs to be covered to the representing provider of the insurance company. However, this actually requires the insurance company or like the, the clinician staff to facilitate with the insurance company a block of time where both the gastroenterologist and the representative is actually available to connect and talk you need to give them like a three hour block of when a gastroenterologist might be available. And as you can imagine, no one has time for that. And then sometimes essentially what's more frustrating then is that um, the representative on the insurance side actually does another call. So it's a really inefficient process. Um, there's additional barriers and time constraints that are placed on the practice um, that's completely unnecessary. And this is honestly time and resources that could be better spent elsewhere such as seeing or outreaching the more patients. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about how much time is spent? I'm sure there have been studies on this as well. Yeah, so I know we haven't specifically looked at the time spent on insurance issues in our practice, but I can easily see this endeavor being 40 plus hours a week, depending on the volume of the practice. 
ideally in an ideal work situation, every practice should have one team or one person that is dedicated to handling all the insurance issues because honestly, it is a full-time job. So my perspective, I actually help a lot out with appeal letters and peer-to-peer. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I usually spend maybe about 10 hours a week completing these activities. And I think one study specifically found that two-thirds of practices um, have staff that is exclusively dedicated to the prioritization process. Um, and I think the reported time has been anywhere from like 10 to 20 hours a week, or maybe even 21 to 40 hours a week, depending on the volume of the patients that they're saving. I feel like that also might be under recorded or underreported. Uh, yeah, because like you were saying, there's probably also lots of other little pieces that don't necessarily get, you know, it's very difficult to keep track of your time when you're doing something. So like you can keep track of big chunks of time, but what if you're spending 5, 10, 15 minutes here and there throughout your day working on something and, you know, keeping track of all of that has to be really difficult too. I really wanted to make sure that patients hear your side of it because, We know our side of it. I know Jamie is very well acquainted with the amount of time uh, that she spends on insurance issues. How much time do you think you spend, Jamie? Like a year, a week? What do you think? You know, it honestly depends on the medication, how long I've been on that medication, uh, the insurance cycle, and also if it is a move to a new doctor's office. Those are all different impacts. Or if you're at a university uh, system, every semester you have new fellows coming in and interns and all the like. And so some of them get tasked with that as part of their their internship or their fellowship. So that cycle can also have uh, things fall by the wayside, not intentionally, but because of the insurance lag that is created. Um, So if it is uh, a new medication or something that just keeps getting denied, I could spend well over 40 hours in a week, let alone a month, you know, uh, with phone calls between provider staff members, because you have to tell one staff member and then repeat the same thing over because it's usually a gatekeeper or a message taker. And then they put you through to someone and then they're like, so I heard there's a problem. What's up? So you have to <laughs> information. And then eventually, you know, if you, if you get to talk to your doctor as well, they're going to want to know what happened. And so it's, there's just so much time wasted. And I'm such a big believer in, in making things easy and smooth and just running things lean and it's frustrating to, to see all the stop gaps. And especially when you see people say that, you know, it's not worth it anymore. I just, I'd rather not take the medication than have to worry about getting it approved. And that just guts me. Yeah. And to, that's a Jamie's point. I mean, she brings up a lot of important things about at the end of the day, the patient actually doesn't probably need to be involved in this. It's just that there's no seamless <laughs> coordination between the insurance company and the office, right? They like, oh, we sent you a fax. Okay, well, do you know how many fax we get? And by the way, it's also 2022. Why are we still using fax machines? <laughs> 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 how many times I hear that comment? Uh, but it's like going to the point again that, you know, there's just, there's just a lot of inefficiencies in this process. And Amber, to your yeah. point where you say that all of us is underreported, it's true because how much time do we spend documenting every little step. And it's at the end of the day, like who has time to sit down and time that? Because you just got to keep moving. And because it is such an interrupted process, it's not like you do it once, you get a determination mm-hmm. and you're done and move on. It's just like there's no point in kind of tracking. I mean, there's utility in tracking it, but it's just one of the additional things now that someone that's already overburdened needs to do.
Jamie, when you talk to your doctors, what do you tell them about this? And, and are they able to sort of intervene with you and help you get any of these problems solved? I've been lucky. Having established a relationship with majority of my doctors and their like number one right-hand person or their second-hand person who does prior authorizations and prescription ordering, and especially mine in particular, at this point in time, uh, all of my doctors, except for one, have uh, been on my team for the last 10 years, if not a little bit longer. So that relationship is established. But there was a gap where I lost my GI for two years when she was switching practices. And so I had to rely on another practice. And um, thankfully, they were a well-oiled machine. They, they were on it. They were used to treating IBD patients. And I did not have to lift a finger. So it's funny that now that she's at this other practice where they treat a lot of IBD patients, I still feel like I do a little bit more heavy lifting than I've had to. Um, I still had to do heavy lifting with the university system at times. It's just because there's so many patients and there's only so much time allotted per person. So, and I'm type A personality. I, I need to know why and what is going on. So I've lost count of how many times my doctor's team members have gotten back to me saying, well, I spoke to so-and-so on such date and I spoke to this person on this date. And no, that is not what happened. And I faxed this in on A, B, C, D, and E. And the insurance company will come back and be like, I never received a fax. We never received this document. We never received this phone call. And it becomes a bunch of finger pointing. And I have seen where I live in Central Florida, patients get into a heated conversation with those team members from the doctor's office and even their doctor's off, their doctor having that conversation with them and it gets heated and people get offended being called liars, right? Because if the insurance company tells you that this person didn't do it, who are you going to believe? The people who are fighting for you or the people who don't want to provide you with anything because it doesn't benefit them financially to help you. And unfortunately, I have seen people get kicked out of the practice because the conversations get too heated or too accusatory, or it's just not worth it for the practice to deal with that patient anymore. So that's another facet to this. So I try to be careful when I word my messages. I don't point fingers. I just lay the facts out and hope for the best. Jamie, so I really appreciate you sharing that perspective because I can tell you that from our end, it's the same thing on our end as well. And at the end of the day, the patient's the one that's paying for it. But other than that, like this is time that we could be spending doing other things with patients, right? And I will say that sometimes we do get uh, um, a little bit of like angry comments and stuff and it doesn't help us. At the end of the day, we're in the same boat as you in the sense that we can only do so much and the rest is in the insurance company's hands. We're here for you, right? Like that's our, that's our main, we practice medicine because we want to make sure that we get people feeling better and we want to keep them healthy. So definitely appreciate you bringing up the fact that, um, you know, kind words are never bad. It's, and we're always trying to do what we can on our end. And that at the end of the day, just sometimes we just got to wait and have the insurance company hopefully get back to us and make the determination that we actually want. Dr. Bott, this is a big question I'm going to ask you, but do you have any thoughts on how some of the stumbling blocks that we have with insurance could be minimized or lessened? Yeah, sure. <laughs> There's a lot that we can that could be done. <laughs> so I think that the prioritization process can be significantly refined. Not every insurance plan has a standardized process. So some will accept prioritizations electronically. Others will require the process to be initiated by fax or phone. 
And then even for the appeal process, like someone will say that you need to do two rounds of appeal letters, and then you can do a peer-to-peer before they make a final decision. But then other insurance companies won't even allow a peer-to-peer option. They say that the only way you can do this is to write a letter. But the insurance are not up to speed. So having them get up to speed, having them standardize the authorization process would eliminate so many unnecessary administrative burdens. And I would think that if there's no way to get away with the prior authorization process, then at least streamlining or improving the navigation process for insurance requirements and formularies. So keep in mind, formularies often list what services and medications are covered or if there's restrictions in place. So it can be a handy document to utilize if you know how to get to it and if you know how to interpret it. Mm. So there's a lot of plans out there. There's no standardized mechanism or place to look up individual insurance requirements. But if this was actually standardized, then both the patients and providers can actually proactively see it ahead of time and maybe even come up with a plan that works with both, like all parties. And um, to highlight one of Jamie's points, you mentioned something about medical versus pharmacy benefits. And I think this is important for all IBD patients to know. So in general, so just generally speaking, most infusions tend to get covered under medical benefits and most self-injectables tend to be covered in the pharmacy benefits. But more recently, we're actually starting to see a blur of lines, and this all has to go back to the cost perspective on the on the insurance side. Um, but sometimes, essentially, a biologic or like a um, a, a infusible medicine might actually be covered under pharmacy. So then it gets even more confusing because again, there's no standardization of how to go about doing this. So again, I think if we can actually clean up the process, take out some of this big puzzle figuring out pieces. Um, I think things could be so much better. Jamie, there's been times when I know for myself that I've had a delay in care because of these things that have happened. Was there a time when you couldn't access the care that you needed? Did you ever get it resolved in some way? That's basically how I became disabled because my health began to deteriorate so much because I was forced into step therapy as well as um, steroids, which my body just could not handle the long-term use of. Instead of it becoming helpful, it actually became detrimental to, to use them and expensive because insurance didn't cover them either. I had to order them from Canada, oh boy. Um, a story for a different day. But yeah. it took, I want to say, um, from the time where my flare started in 2012 to March of 2013 is when it was finally approved. And let me preface it with saying that <laughs> knowing what I know now, I should not have had to wait and we probably should have gone through different avenues to just sidestep insurance altogether because I had a private plan, which at the time was called a catastrophic plan because I had pre-existing conditions. The ACA had not fully blossomed and took over and made things easier. I was able to qualify for insurance on my own because I was working as a contractor. I didn't have ERISA which is an employer-based plan or a corporate plan. So in that year, in some odd months that I had to wait, I, it got approved, but my deductible was $16,666. It is such a weird number to begin with. And that has stuck with me for so many years. And so they said, sure, you can take this medication, but we're not paying for it until you pay $16,666 out of pocket <laughs> first. I am now disabled and can no longer work. And I've lost my house and I've lost my career. And where is that $16,666 going to come from? 
So at that point, thankfully, the medications manufacturer had a program for people whose insurance plans either wouldn't carry coverage for it, or it was just too unattainable. And so they had a foundation arm that that sponsored my medication with a low copay of $50 a month at that point, which in, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, $50 is amazing as opposed to $16,666. So, and that was on top of your premium, right? My premium, um, which was more than my car payment was $425 a month. On the one hand, I'm a little bit in awe that you're able to remember these numbers. But on the other hand, I completely understand why, because yeah. that's obscene. It, it was. It absolutely was. And it was a lot easier to pay when I didn't have a house payment anymore. Not as much when you don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Dr. Bott, has there ever been a time when you haven't been able to get a problem with insurance resolved? And what about a time or two when you have been able to resolve a problem? Yeah, so I definitely had successes and failures with the appeal process for when the requested prescribed medication was not being covered. Um, and again, the reason for why the insurance um, company refuses to cover medicine, is, it really varies. So I can tell you at the time, and one example, a gastroenterologist had requested betalizumab um, for a patient because she was in her 60s, and we know that the safety profile of the treatment is really unmatched. The most recent colonoscopy showed that there was some progression of disease that were warranted biologic treatment. So I can totally understand where she's coming from, especially being in her 60s and having concerns about infection risk, side effect profile, etc. So we had a whole clinical case built out, the justification for why this should be an appropriate medication for her. The insurance denied it, saying that she had to either fail or have a contraindication. So at that point, we weren't able to create a compromise, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, like in a successful case, so even for the successful cases where I'm actually able to get the coverage that we want for the treatment that we want, or keep patients on the treatment that we've identified have been working for them, it's the best treatment for them, they're doing so clinically well. Even in these situations, I can tell you that there's often treatment delays or interruptions. And we know that this is never ideal because in IBD, there's the risk for flares and IBD symptom occurrence um, the longer you're off medication. So even if we are successful, there's still so many issues with the system in itself. Um, that it's just a, it's not ideal for patient care. Absolutely. So dealing with insurance is not something that we know how to do. Nobody really teaches us how to do this. I can't think of a class or anywhere to learn this at all, except by just the school of hard knocks, frankly. So I'm going to ask you, Jamie, if you have any tips for patients on how to deal with insurance or any resources that you found that are helpful to you. Yes. So I think the first thing is first, um, approach everyone with kindness. I used to work for a foundation, and one of the first things that my former boss had uh, tried to really instill in her team is lead with kindness. Um, Mm. Nothing good ever comes of treating people with disdain or sheer meanness. You know, we get you can be frustrated over something, but kindness is going to get you a lot further in communicating with people than the opposite. Mm -hmm. So that is my first tip. Number one, so important, no matter how frustrated you are, how sick you are feeling, remember that these people have heard a lot and maybe even more than you can imagine. And 
taking it out on them is not going to get you anywhere. It's okay to tell them you're frustrated. It's okay to tell them why you're frustrated, but don't take it out on them. Second, I don't know, maybe some people think this is more important than than leading with kindness. Taking notes. <laughs> Keep track of dates, who you've spoken to, uh, what numbers you called <laughs> when you've yes. done that. And it feels like a job and it feels so clerical and so stale. But do it because it will help you jog memories of those conversations when you see those notes. Uh, oftentimes, when you're speaking to someone from a call center or working in a call center environment for their for the insurance company, or even uh, at the doctor's office, if they're part of the message taking team, they're not transcribing everything. So you mm. need to really keep detailed notes for yourself so that if you do need to pass that on to your doctor or their right or left hand person, you have that information there. Uh, the next part is kind of like an AB type to number two, because, you know, I, I usually keep one or two notebooks around one or two notebooks at the end of the year has morphed into five or six notebooks oh boy. and using track of which notebooks you're taking notes in. No, no bueno. So, um, most, most cell phones and most, um, computers and, uh, online software, there is a note or a, uh, document type of situation that you can do or take a picture of those notes and make a file on your phone so that you always have access to it. it. You never know when you need to back up your own information to prove that you did do something on your end or to help your doctor's office get that accomplished. So uh, another one is depending on the medication, there may be patient assistance involved and not just financial patient assistance, that there's a nurse and or uh, a business arm for that manufacturer's patient assistance that will help you with questions such as, I have a high deductible insurance plan through my spouse's corporation. And that deductible is so expensive. I don't think I'm going to be able to afford any of my tests this year because my medicine used to cover that. And I'll mm -hmm. add it my five, 10, 15 or $50 copay over the last two years. This has become a huge problem. Right. Those people in your, uh, manufacturers, patient assistance program have tips that you can get from them. One of them is that if you can find a way to pay for the medication out of pocket, it's going to hurt up front, but then you can apply to patient assistance to get remunerated. But I have to put a preface on this that some of the insurance companies have gotten wise to this and they put a lot of scary literature out there and they will mm. send it to you and tell you that you technically have to tell them if you are doing that. I don't think it's legal. I don't think it's fair. I know that there are groups trying to fight this right now. Mm -hmm. There, This literally could become a whole other subject unto itself because there are insurance companies um, that are being forced to share which patients could qualify for these programs, um, but aren't utilizing them. So oh. yeah, my recommendation is to speak to uh, the people at the company for your manufacturer's assistance and see what options you have in different ways um, you might be able to uh, get things accomplished in an affordable manner because one of the worst things that I think we can do as patients is great, we're taking our medication, we're, we're staying on schedule, but we've fallen off of the testing track and mm -hmm. falling off of the testing track is 
it's detrimental to your overall treatment plan. And also we know that we're our groups anyway for IBD, we're at higher risk for colorectal cancer and other cancers. So screening is so important and critical to our, our regular care. Right, exactly. I we're at risk of a host of things that are seem related and make sense. And then other things that don't seem related and don't make any sense at all. I'm so glad every year that the, uh, the, the pap smear and the mammographies are, are covered for me because it's never something that I have to worry about. And it's, I'm just, I'm so grateful for that every year because it is recommended that I get them every year. Um, so I'm wondering, Dr. Bott, do you have anything to add? Any other tips for patients on how they can manage this insurance process? Yeah, so Jamie brought up a lot of great points. I'm just going to add a few more things um, to, mm-hmm. to supplement that. So I think the most impactful step that a patient can take, if you have the option, is to thoroughly review health insurance plan options and pick the one that has the best coverage in regards mm-hmm. to IBD management and treatment. So this would ideally be the best case scenario if you have the option to decide which insurance plan you can get. Um, and that actually, like, when you take a look at it, it's going to be most comprehensive, most cost-effective for managing your IBD. That would be the best thing you could do for yourself. But if you don't have that option, then really the next best step is to know your insurance plan inside out. Um, and so basically understanding what's covered, what's not covered, what's the deductible, what's the premium. And uh, there's a lot of insurance concepts that are really hard to understand, but it's critical to understand because the more you know about this terminology, the better you can kind of handle your expenses, handle your navigation of care, and et cetera. So I would like to give a shout out to the Clarence and Colitis Foundation. Um, they have a great part of their website that actually highlights um, all the insurance navigation piece. So I would highly encourage patients to check it out. And then once you're, um, then conversely on the other side, once the patient is dealing with insurance issues, communicating with the gastroenterology practice is critical. I can't tell you that we're not often aware of the issues until you contact us and let us know. And if you are communicating with the insurance company directly and you're getting real-time information, so if you have that information already, relay that to us so that that way we can make sure that we're all on the same page. And just know that once we do submit the prior authorization or once we submit whatever the insurance is requiring, it's honestly out of our hands until the insurer reviews and makes the determination. So again, I wish that patients didn't necessarily have to be in the middle of this, and I wish that clinicians had the resources to directly handle this themselves. Um, But the reality is that, again, this is just another thing that's imposed by the insurance company. So having that dynamic partnership and making sure that as much as we can reconcile the differences and making sure that we're on the same page about what's expected and what should be happening going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we love our healthcare providers. Like we would love to make this all easier on you as much as as we can, you know. So I'm sure patients are willing to do whatever they are able to do in order to move the process forward and also take some of the the burden as well. And that makes me think about activism. So, Jamie, what do you think? How can patients get involved in healthcare reform? So there's a few ways that patients can get involved in um, healthcare reform. Uh, the first thing is you can just simply write a letter to your members of Congress, uh, state representatives and uh, uh, senators, and it can be at the state level as well as the federal level. Sometimes people do actually get back to you. Um, a lot of the senators uh, and Uh, legislators are available on Twitter and on Facebook. And it's not necessarily them manning the page, but they have staff 
who are manning their their boxes and their their tweets and looking for things um, that they might be able to help with. Another thing that you can look for is if you think that you're being affected by uh, step therapy, you can check to see if your state has created a law around it. Uh, recently, I live in Florida. State of Florida has made some some headway on step therapy reform. But what I found out was it's it's like two steps forward and one step full, one step back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the step therapy. Uh, legislation that they came out with really only covers private plans because ERISA, which would be corporate uh, provided insurance plans, can be based out of multiple states. And then there's these rules that kind of fall in a gray area where some of Florida's laws may count for that plan. But also if the plan is based out of another state, some of the laws from that state may help the plan make decisions and rules that may not be in your favor. Mm -hmm. So as much as uh, states are making reform right now, federal legislation for step therapy, for example, needs to be set in place so that everybody can fall under one umbrella for this particular reform. Um, So the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation is a great way to start. You can reach out to them and ask how you can get involved. Um, you can look online for other advocates who are involved in healthcare reform, especially when there's days on the hill, uh, like the there's the Crohn's and colitis day on the hill. There is also uh, the Digestive Disease National Coalition. We just had their day on the hill, and um, that was great. And then also there's going to be um, other foundations that are involved with inflammatory bowel disease that may also have some of their own reform points of, of contact uh, that can help you figure out what it is you like to do and also some training sessions on how to communicate better with members of Congress. Um, another thing that I think people can do is look and see if look for keywords online if there's any type of legislation around uh, something that's been bothering you with uh, either your insurance plan, your medication, or um, the way that things are being handled by your insurance plan. Because you'd be surprised that there's a lot of legislation out there that's just kind of sitting. And the only way that we can get it to move is if attention is brought to it and it's brought to a vote and it comes out of committee. So if you find something that becomes a passion point, make contact with your state legislator, your federal legislator also, to see if there's something that can be done. Um, And if it hasn't been done yet, what can we do about that? So it it starts with an ask, basically. Definitely. So I know the American Gastroenterological Association, or the AGA, actually has an advocacy group. um, And they've identified their their advocacy priority for 2022 to include, um, first of all, reducing prior authorization burdens that delay patient access to care. And the second bullet point is reducing or eliminating step therapy and insurance-initiated switches in patient treatment for non-medical reasons. So they're specifically referring to biosimilars in this capacity. And then there's also a few bills in Congress that healthcare providers can utilize an online system to, for to be, essentially bring their representative attention to and ask for co-sponsorship. And I know that the Clinton and Colitis Foundation, again, they're also committed to advocacy. So they're bringing attention to bills that are currently drafted or being considered. And they're encouraging members to reach out to the representative as well um, to emphasize the importance of these bills in IBD care. There's definitely an advocacy arm or component generally to most of these organizations that healthcare providers can look um, more into 
to kind of help advance some of this on a legislation level. Dr. Bot, I was on your Twitter the other day, and I saw a couple photos of your dog. Would you tell me some more about your dog? Yes, I have a, he's now three-year-old Dalmatian. Um, his name is Jackson. I got him from the shelter. So I think he might have been a purebred, but he's actually uh, deaf, so he has no hearing capability. Um, and so interestingly, if you're a purebred dog, you can't have like any genetic defects or any um, issues like that. So I think what might have oh. happened was that he probably was uh, bred for like a pure, to be like a purebred Dalmatian. And then when they did the testing, um, they found out that he's like deaf or hard of hearing. And so they basically um, put him in the shelter. <laughs> the shelter oh claims that they said uh, that he basically, um, they found him on the street. But I think that the person that bred him probably dropped him off at the shelter because legally they're supposed to euthanize him otherwise um, so that they don't necessarily pass down those genes. So needless to say, he's not confounded by hearing or lack of hearing, I should say, at all. Um, they're a robust, hyper boy. Very <laughs> <laughs> energetic, very Dalmatian in nature. So it's a lot to handle, but I wouldn't trade him for anything in the world. He's really cute. He looks like his face. There's such intelligence in his face. And Jamie, you have a dog, but I'm not going to ask you about your dog. Uh, (laughs) I'm instead going to ask you about your most recent addition to your family because you are a new mom. You know, babies change all the time. So just tell me what's your daughter up to like this week or maybe even just today. What's she doing today? Well, man, you missed the perfect pun intro for IBD moms. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Um, what isn't she up to? I, it's weird. Like in a matter of, of days, she went from kind of like rolling around like a little potato to crawling, uh, not fully crawling, but just uh, army crawls and attempting to crawl to I had her on the changing table where she does alligator barrel rolls, which if you are from Florida, you kind of understand about the alligator barrel roll thing. And so while trying to catch her mid roll, she tried to stand up and I don't know where this is coming from. And she's not even eight months for another 12 hours or so. So I'm not ready for this. I'm, I'm just sitting here going, Oh God, Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's hilarious because you spend the first year of their life trying to get them to walk and talk. And then you're going to spend the next several years getting them to sit down and shut up. (laughs) This is very true. And I feel like I wasn't even in a rush. I wasn't trying to encourage her to crawl. Everybody else was. I was like, no, just be my baby a little bit longer. And nope. Well, I enjoy the pictures that you share. Thank you so much for letting us in on a little bit of what it's like to be a new mom in your house and your daughter, what she's up to this week. Dr. Bot, Jamie, thank you both so much for coming on about IBD and talking with me about insurance issues. You've given me a lot to think about and the show notes are going to be so very long. So thank you so much for all of the tips and information that will help patients on their journey. Thank you both. Thanks, Amber. Thank you, Amber. 
Hey, super listener. Thanks to Dr. Shuba Bhatt for sharing her knowledge and experience surrounding health insurance. She is clearly passionate about patient care and her work benefits not only her patients, but also everyone who lives with an IBD. You can follow Dr. Bot on Twitter as at GI underscore PharmD. Thank you also to Jamie Holland, who not only helps me on a daily basis as my unofficial content management specialist, but she also works behind the scenes to help many other patients understand health insurance issues. You can find her all over the interwebs as Pretty Rotten Guts. Links to a written transcript, everyone's social media handles, and more information on the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on my episode 113 page on aboutibd.com. You can follow me, Amber Tresca, across all social media as About IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. The American Gastroenterological Association and About IBD, How to Be Happy and Healthy with IBD podcast series is supported by Arena Pharmaceuticals. About IBD is a production of Malintel Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. We'll be right back.